Let's open our Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. For those of you listening to this at some other time, we have had read to us in this assembly before the preaching of God's Word. Mark chapter 9 verses 38 through 48 about mortification of our flesh. That means putting to death our sinful lusts, no matter how valuable or practical or precious they might be to us, like an eye, like a hand, like a foot, because it is better to enter into life maimed. It is better to go through this life denying ourselves some of its pleasures than to take our whole lives to hell, where the fire is not quenched and the worm dieth not. We also had read 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 12, which describes the church of the Old Testament and how they failed at God's best for their lives and God punished them and how we could fall the same way. So it is repeated over and over, neither be ye, neither let ye, neither should we do the things that they did because they are examples for us. And then we had read Hebrews 10, 23 through 31, which describes faithfulness to what God has showed us, and those that sin against the knowledge of the truth, there is no further sacrifice for sin, but God coming in vengeance and judgment, and it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We understand that last passage to be describing God's judgment against the Hebrews as they approached 70 A.D., that if some of those believing Christians were to revert back to the animal sacrifice system of Moses, that they would be counting the blood of the covenant an unholy thing. Can you imagine being baptized in the name of Jesus, sitting through communion many times, then going back to animal sacrifices? What does that say about the blood of Christ? What does it say about the Spirit of grace that accompanied the New Testament gospel? The Lord considered them, anyone that did that, anyone that backslid that badly, to be part of his adversaries and would be destroyed with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Brother Chris shared some verses with you from Deuteronomy 32, and it is a long and good chapter. It is the Song of Moses, and it is a severe warning to God's people backsliding. I want to share a couple more verses from it. Deuteronomy chapter 32 Verse 41, just listen to a couple of verses. If I whet my glittering sword. This is God, the Father, speaking to His people, the children of Israel, His church of the Old Testament. If I whet my glittering sword and mine hand take hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to mine enemies and will reward them that hate me. I will make mine arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh, and that with the blood of the slain and of the captives from the beginning of revenges upon the enemy. Wow! Look at verse 40. For I lift up my hand to heaven, and say, I live forever. This is the God of the Bible being expressed in a song of Moses. And the book of Revelation, I believe it's chapter 15, tells us that the song of Moses is sung in heaven because this reflects the glory of God. And those that want to chase after idols and other gods, this is how he deals with them. In those verses I just read, and the verses that 
uh, Chris read in the verses that we heard from Mark earlier this morning, God is very severe against backsliders, which leads us to 2 Peter chapter 2. Let me see if I can do something I don't think I can do. Let's try to finish this chapter. We'll just, we'll hit the high points of these verses, and there's many lower points that are in the outline that will be available uh, even this afternoon, the Lord willing, on our website. Second Peter chapter 2, we want to start reading at verse 13 to gather in what we had earlier with what follows. Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 13, God's warning against false teachers. He is focusing on false teachers, but as I read it, it is going to shift to the many that fall victim to their false doctrine. Second Peter 2.13 and shall receive the reward of unrighteousness, as they that count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. Spots they are, and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery, and that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls, and heart they have exercised with covetous practices, Cursed children, which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Bosor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but was rebuked for his iniquity. The dumb ass speaking with man's voice forbade the madness of the prophet. These are wells without water, clouds that are carried with a tempest, to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought in bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb. The dog is turned to his own vomit again and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. Amen and amen. We have made our way to the middle of verse 14, where it says, They beguile unstable souls. These are the teachers and their victims. Notice, it says, Beguiling unstable souls, and it's referring to an active party that are the false teachers. So there are false teachers that have eyes full of adultery. They cannot cease from sin. They're, they rebel against civil authority and the other things that are said of them, but they have a, they have a victim. They have a prey that they're preying on, and those are unstable souls. And unstable souls are weak Christians. Flat out, they are weak Christians that compromise in their holy standards of living for themselves and their families. 
and they're beguiled. The Bible says in James 1.8, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. You get unstable by not being committed to one course for your life. Your eye should be looking forward and straight on as Jesus would teach in Matthew 6. We don't want an evil eye. That means a corrupt eye that's wandering all over. We want to be focused on exactly the Lord's calling and His path for our lives. And if you are double-minded about it, you're unstable in all your ways, you are vulnerable. You're not ruling your spirit. You are at risk of having your walls torn down by an opposing enemy and falling victim to false teachers. Much more could be said, but then we get so focused on the bark of these trees that we miss the forest of Second Peter chapter 2. Beguiling unstable souls. So how do we protect ourselves? What makes you unstable? It's being double-minded. Every church member here, and we want to help each other, and that is why God ordained churches is for us to help each other be single-minded. Christ only. Heaven only. Righteousness only. I only want the right road. I want the center of that road. I don't want any ditches. I want to pursue Jesus Christ. That is being single-minded. That man is not going to be affected or influenced by vain swelling words of vanity that we're about to hear of. He won't be moved by them. He won't be moved by personalities. Christ is the only personality we want in our church. We don't want anything else. We want the Lord Jesus Christ. And the more we're focused on Him, the less we can be distracted by things in this world. Beguiling, unstable souls. You know, there's a whole brand of Christianity now that are very double-minded. They're lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. They have a form of godliness, but they deny the power that God has a right to dictate the terms of our lives. This is what we must guard against and run away from and fight and oppose so that we are focused on living that Christ-changed life and admit and show the power and authority that God has to dictate how we live. A man playing with the flesh is easy prey for false teachers with false grace. It goes on to say in verse 14, And heart they have exercised with covetous practices. False teachers are often, are generally in it for the money. That's what it means when it says, And heart they have exercised with covetous practices. They are always looking for how they can turn a buck from God's church. And so we have Balaam introduced into the context following because that was Balaam's problem. He was interested in the wages of unrighteousness. He wanted to get those benefits and blessings and the big paycheck from Balak, king of Moab. And so he's immediately brought into context because the explanation for this clause is that they have in heart, they're always looking for how they can take advantage of God's people. Do you remember back in verse 3 of this chapter, it says, through covetousness, shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you. There are men that will fake religion to make merchandise out of God's people. And you know, some of them hit the news. You know, Creflo Dollar hit the news recently because what was that number? Was it 6 million or 60 million he wanted for that personal jet of his? And just about the whole charismatic world thought that he was nuts for the way that he went after it. Uh, but they're always thinking. And so look what it says about them. Now, I like a verse 
that is out of the modern translations of our Bible. And it's Matthew 23 and verse 14. And it, I, I believe it goes, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you make... for oh, I'm 58 years old, and it just doesn't work anymore sometimes. Amen. Here's how it goes. Matthew 23, 14 in the King James Bible. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, exclamation point, for ye devour widows' houses... And for a pretense, make long prayer. Therefore, ye shall receive the greater damnation. There's men devouring widows' houses. They are coming on the television. They are using whatever means they can to extract the last dollar out of a widow's pocket. And for a pretense, they make long prayers. Over here in Second Peter 2.3, it's with feigned words, but it's all for merchandise. It's making merchandise of God's people. Matthew 23 and verse 14. But we're back to 2 Peter 2 and verse 14. And heart they have exercised with covetous practices. Therefore, when we ordain anyone, or when a minister ordains anyone to the ministry, one of the rules mentioned in 1 Timothy 3, and, and again in 1 Timothy 3 about deacons as well, and in Titus chapter 1, they cannot be greedy of filthy lucre. Right. Because if a man that likes money is in the pulpit, he's going to be tempted to alter his doctrine and alter the practice of his religion in order to keep the big, the, the well-heeled givers in his church happy with him. And it can't be that way. There can't be any partiality shown, especially for money. Then you're like Balaam. And Balaam is mentioned five Old Testament books, three New Testament books. Eight times Balaam is brought up because he is such an example of money-hungry men corrupting the ministry. And you know that many verses could be raised. The Apostle Paul was the opposite. Contrary to this clause and heart they have exercised with covetous practices is Paul that said, I never used a cloak of covetousness when I came to you Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. On the contrary, Paul taught Timothy that real gain, especially for a minister, is godliness with contentment. Right. Not gain in numbers. Real, if you go look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, you know, you think that 1 Timothy 6 6 is for you, and it is, but it's primarily for a minister because it is just finished in three verses, verses 3 through 5, condemning ministers that think gain is godliness. And that is when we get verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. And that's what we want to remember, and that's the warning against false teachers. Anyone that is that considers money very important to them, and you can tell that they're ambitious and greedy toward money and things, they don't belong in the ministry. It doesn't matter how eloquent they might be or how, how well they know the Word of God, they cannot be greedy of filthy lucre. They cannot be given to it. Notice this says that they have hearts exercised in these covetous practices. I want to stop right here for a moment. You can exercise your heart. You know, we live in a society that emphasizes the exercise of our bodies, which the Bible says in 1 Timothy 4, 8, has little profit. Right. But there is another exercise that you can be engaged in, and that is the exercise of your heart. And thus, the Bible says, Solomon teaches us, following his father's instruction in Proverbs chapter 4, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. They are constantly churning in their heart 
as to how they can make money off of God's people. We should be constantly churning in our heart, how can we glorify the Lord Jesus Christ? What can I do for Christ today? What can I do for Jesus Christ right now? And these are, these are the young people, right? These are the inputs. These are the inputs that alter our, out, our outlook and perspective on life. Daily Bible reading, daily prayer, Christian friends, only Christian music, only Christian entertainment. If you compromise those, it tears you down. You can exercise your heart by all the inputs coming into it being good. If you're listening to Christian music and you're letting temple music in through the two holes into your temple that's the temple of the Holy Ghost, it's going to lift you up in the Lord. Or you can listen to the world's music, and I did my share of that when I was young. You can listen to the world's music and it will corrupt you. And I put in an update this past week to you about about the level of suicide on the part of youth that listen to rock and roll music because it's the destructive music of the devil. Look at its fruits. Look at the people that perform it and their lifespan. Look at the people that perform rap and their lifespan. And look at the causes of death by those that listen to that junk. It's destructive. We want to measure everything by its fruit toward godliness. Is rock and roll music fruit toward the world and sin and lust and pleasure? Or toward God, holiness, righteousness, and eternal life? We measure things by their fruits. You can exercise your heart. All sins begin in the heart which needs to be ruled. The heart has a default to sin, but you can set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. The Bible says that. You know, yes, strong feelings come over you, and if you have a, if you are weak toward rock and roll music, all it takes is a couple bars of that stuff from the 1970s. All you gotta do is get me in a restaurant, and I hear a couple bars of the Who banging away from the, from the 1970s, and it brings back that raging young man that lived off that devilish music for the rebellion that flew out of his life. And so you change that by listening to Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and it totally changes your outlook. Don't forget the power of music. When King Saul had the Holy Spirit taken from him, and an evil spirit from the Lord replaced it in King Saul's life, what did, what did his servants know should be done? Get some good music around him. And that's when they found David. So they got some good music around him, and when David was there playing... The evil spirit would leave Saul and Saul would be okay. If David wasn't there, the evil spirit, you know, now it got worse. Things continued to degenerate until it didn't matter whether David was playing or not. If Saul saw a javelin nearby, he wanted to kill his harpist. Okay. Oh, brethren, let's exercise our heart. Brethren, this is what I'm trying to say today. We celebrated 35 years history of our church last Lord's Day. We had a mirth feast. We did it the Bible way. We did it right. We gave Him all the honor and the glory that we possibly could for so many things He's taught us. Are we proud of ourselves that we practice baptism by immersion? Forgive me. Do I believe in baptism by immersion? I hope equal to or more than anyone in here. However, there are some other things that we can do that rank higher than that. Since the Lord's given us that, let's just climb on up toward glory We used to sing a song when I was growing up called Higher Ground. Lord, lift me up to higher ground. Certainly we can advance beyond baptism by immersion, can't we? Let's advance to this right here, exercising our heart toward godliness. It's worded this way over in 1 Timothy chapter 4. 
1 Timothy 4, Refuse profane and old wives' fables and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. For bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. As the Lord has turned our emphasis in this church during the process of that 35 years. Now we're starting out a new 35 years or or one week, however you want to look at it. Let's make sure we're exercising ourselves unto godliness. What do you do to exercise your heart? Remember? Daily, meditative, careful Bible reading. Daily confession of your sins and begging God through Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Ghost for help in your inner man. Only Christian friends. The rest of them are only ones we have to deal with in the world. And avoiding the world's entertainment and the world's music. Those things begin to start to exercise us. We want want to be thinking upon spiritual things. We want to set our affection there. As I've already said, that's what it means to be exercising our hearts away from covetousness and toward the Lord. And you know what one of our prayers can be? It's found over in the book of Psalms. And in the Psalms, David prayed, Lord, turn my heart, incline my heart away from covetousness and toward thy statutes. That's how we want to be praying and that's how we want to be living. Cursed children. What does that tell you about these people? These false teachers, they're reprobates. They're children of wrath. They're children of God's judgment. They're children of the devil. Children of wrath is Ephesians 2.3. Children of the devil is John 8.44. What do we want to be? Dear children. I love Ephesians 5.1 as, as an antithetical text to this one. Let them be cursed children. Let us be dear children. Ephesians 5.1 says, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. Let's follow the Lord and be His dear children rather than go against the Lord in these ways described and be cursed children which have forsaken the right way. These false teachers are not practicing true religion. They're not practicing a proper biblical ministry and they're gone astray just like Balaam, the son of Bosor, Beor in the Old Testament who loved the wages of unrighteousness. We had Balaam read to us this morning. There's three chapters in the Bible Eight different books of the Bible have Balaam mentioned because he is an example of a greedy, covetous, money-hungry man and how that got him into deep trouble, though God was speaking to him personally, though he saw a vision of an angel with a drawn sword, though he had a donkey, an ass, talking to him, he still was perverse in his way. And the word is perversity in Numbers 22 and verse 32. And we are perverse whenever we don't do what God's told us, and the lion has roared today, and that isn't me, the lion's roared from God's Word, who shall not fear? Whatever God's Word tells us, we need to do it, or we end up like Balaam, and we're not even getting paid for it. At least Balaam got paid. He didn't have long to spend it, because the Bible wants us to know that in the battle shortly after Numbers chapter 25, Balaam was killed in battle against Israel. Now you know, there's two events, there's two parts to Balaam's life. First, the king of Balak, the king of Moab, Balak by name, sent ambassadors to Balaam offering him great rewards, honor, and money if he would come and curse Israel. Oh, he wanted that paycheck badly. When a king was asking for his services, 
rather than some, you know, poor people that wanted him to read their palms or whatever. He went because he wanted to make the big paycheck. But now God starts speaking to him immediately. And if you were paying attention in Numbers 22, God said to him, if they come for you and ask you to go with them, then I'll let you go with them. That's after Balaam had already pushed the Lord to that state. But the passage that was read to us this morning is, they didn't come to Balaam. Balaam just went ahead and went with them because he thought that he had got enough approval out of the Lord that he could justify going. And the next words are that the, the, the Lord was angry at Balaam. And so we have the event with the donkey, the ass speaking to him. We have the event of that angel with the sword ready to cut Balaam's head off and let his ass live. Um, and so you go in for a couple more chapters, and every time Balaam opened his mouth to curse Israel, he blessed Israel instead. And I preached on that about a year ago. It's a 12-page outline and, a, and several sermons on our website going through because the, the prophecies are wonderful. The prophecies are for our benefit. The prophecies are for God's church. They mention the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're wonderful because God put His words in Balaam's mouth. Okay, so you think, well, well, Balaam didn't get the paycheck because he didn't bless Israel. Oh, you don't know the whole story of Balaam. After Balaam could not curse Israel, he fell back on route number two of overthrowing Israel for the benefit of Moab to get his paycheck. And the Bible tells us this very... I'll read it to you from Numbers 31 and verse 16. Uh, Numbers... 31 and verse 16, Behold, these caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to commit trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor, and there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. What Balaam did was he went to Balak, king of Moab, and said, here's how you do it. You send your best-looking women down there to entice the, the, the men of the nation of Israel and corrupt them through fornication and whoredom. If you can corrupt them, then you can get your gods being worshipped by the Israelite men, and you can send your good-looking sons down there to seduce the daughters of the Israelites, and pretty soon they'll be worshipping your gods as well. God is going to get angry with the nation, and He'll judge them. Was His logic correct? Was His motive good? No. Did God kill Him shortly in battle? Yes. Did it cost Israel a great number of lives? Yes. Numbers chapter 25, the story of Phinehas is Phinehas ending that whoredom with the daughters of Moab? We've got a which verse fifteen, which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray. This, these false teachers that Second Peter two is all about. They have forsaken the right way of religion. They have forsaken the Lord's way of doing things. They have gone astray into their own carnal, covetous, lascivious ways, following the way of Balaam the son of Bosor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but was rebuked for his iniquity. The dumbass speaking with man's voice forbade the madness of the prophet. When it says dumbass, it doesn't mean that asses are stupid. It means that asses can't talk. Asses are stupid, but in this context, asses can't talk. So the ass that doesn't have the gift of speech, all of a sudden had the gift of speech by the power of God to forbid the madness of the prophet who was driving that animal forward. But there was an angel of the Lord there, and the ass tried three different methods, and Balaam beat the ass all three times until they got into a little debate about how unfair that had been. When the ass said, I've been a good ass for you since the day you got me. I never thought about beating you. 
It's just wonderful. And Balaam's engaging in a debate with it. You know, when blindness sets in upon a man, you'll argue with your ass. Uh, and, and the war, eight, eight, eight books of the Bible get this man because he's a warning. And three of them in the New Testament for warnings just like this. Verse 16, the dumb ass speaking with man's voice forbade the madness of the prophet. Period. Verse 17, these are wells without water. There's no substance inside them. And when people go to them to satisfy their thirst, they don't find anything for the satisfying of their soul. They are wells without water. Can you imagine being thirsty and you see, I'm I'm talking about the Middle East climate where they didn't have silver levers in every room of the house that you could turn and get water out of. You know, that you could walk to your refrigerator and stick your cup under it and water flows into it that's already cooled and chilled for you. And if you want crushed ice or whole ice or medium-sized ice, you can push another... We're, We're so... We don't even understand this hardly. A well of water in the Middle East was of great value. And if you were thirsty and you saw it at a distance and you made your way to it, the anticipation would be great. But as you looked over the edge and realized it was a dry well, the Bible says hope deferred maketh the heart sick. That would just aggravate your thirst. And so it is when people go to false teachers that are truly born-again people looking for a message from God's Word that will bless their souls, uplift their minds, and point them toward the cross of Jesus Christ, and they don't get that, but they get vain swelling words of vanity, it leaves them thirstier than they were before. Do you know that in those large mega churches that are catering to the satisfying of fleshly lusts, there are God's children in there looking for something from God's Word to take a refreshing drink, and they never get it? Here's a verse that I like on this particular point. It's Ezekiel 13 and verse 22. I'll read it to you. Here's about false teachers. Because with lies ye have made the heart of the righteous sad, whom I have not made sad, and strengthened the hands of the wicked, that he should not return from his wicked way by promising him life. This grace revolution of Joseph Prince Joel Osteen and what's going down in Houston today. The combination is this. The righteous people that are sitting there wanting to be taught God's Word, God's Word about the Lord Jesus Christ, get nothing. So they go away sad when God said, I didn't intend for their hearts to be sad. And the wicked that come in there, living with someone, without marriage, sitting under Joel's storytelling, they go away strengthened that they don't need to repent because Joel has never mentioned the R word in 15 years of preaching. The R word being repentance. And so their hands, the wicked are strengthened to go ahead and keep living the way that they were and the righteous are made sad. What a well that is. It's only spewing poison instead of providing satisfying water. And so we have, these are wells without water. They're clouds that are carried with a tempest instead of those nice slow clouds that come and hang overhead and with a nice slow drizzle entirely water the earth, these are storm clouds that are tossed and jerked back and forth. And if they release anything, it could be hail or it's too much water and we get one of these South Carolina gully washers. Because they're, they're clouds tossed with a tempest. They're not those clouds that hang there giving us refreshing, refreshing shade and a nice slow drizzle of rain. I, I like the way... Now Jude, Jude's a little more 
lengthy here in this particular section. So he's got trees that are twice dead, plucked up by the roots, fruitless and so forth. But I like, he calls these teachers wandering stars. Wandering stars. Now what does that mean to us? When you were, when, when you were out in a boat and all you, you didn't have GPS back then, okay? It's hard for some of you to imagine. But the Apostle Paul, when he was on a boat in the middle of Mediterranean, did not have GPS. They fixed on stars. They knew constellations better than you do. They knew those stars and how to navigate on the Mediterranean Sea to arrive at a port. But now what if those stars started wandering? Now what do you set your course by? And so these preachers are always changing their wandering stars. We never want to change. We want to hold fast our profession of faith, as Hebrews chapter 10 said to us. That's for another book that makes it even harder to get through this chapter. Verse 17, To whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. That's the proof that these are reprobates. Because this darkness has already been mentioned back in verse 4. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. These over here in verse 17 are reserved to the same thing, the judgment of darkness. And the words of Christ are this, when Jesus Christ will pronounce His woe, upon the wicked that are standing before Him, and and I mean wicked men, here are the words. Matthew 25 and verse 41, Then shall He say also unto them on the left hand, those are the goats on the left hand of the Lord Jesus Christ, the sheep He has already welcomed into, He will welcome them into His Father's heavenly kingdom, prepared for them from the foundation of the world. Verse 41 of Matthew 25 Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Wicked men get the same judgment that wicked angels get. In 2 Peter 2, it's described as darkness and a reservation being made for it. In Matthew 25, it's hell fire and a place prepared for the devil and his angels first, but wicked men go there as well. And so we come to verse 18. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, for when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they have pompous presentations, ostentatious ostentatious speeches. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. In verse 2, we saw many shall follow their pernicious ways. There are two categories of people throughout this chapter. There are the false teachers that are reprobates that bring in damnable heresies into the church, primarily turning the grace of God into lasciviousness, that it doesn't matter how you live, because God loves you just the way you are. And with great swelling words, they talk about a grace revolution. With great swelling words, they'll say things, today it's going down with a great big grin in Houston about God wants all of you to be champions. No, God doesn't. 
Only one can win a race, according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, and everyone else has to be a loser. Or second place. Oh, but he's going to tell his audience with great swelling words of vanity. Vanity means absolutely worthless and profitless that God wants them all to be champions. No, God wants all of us to be saints. Sanctified believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. God wants us to be dear children following God our Father. He doesn't say anything about being champions. The only race that we care about is not a race in this world anyway that the world would identify as being a champion. The race we're concerned about is the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And he's not going to talk about that one. And so we have these this, this, this description here of false teachers. And if anybody wonders why I would name a name from the pulpit, that's the way it's supposed to be done. That's what preachers are supposed to do. Have you read the Bible? They name names. Names are listed. Hymenaeus and Philetus in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Alexander the coppersmith in 2 Timothy chapter 4. 3 John, Diotrephes, wanting to have the preeminence in the church. They're named. We don't play games about sin and sinners. We name them so people can understand what we're talking about. Let's embrace this verse here. For when they, this is the false teachers, speak great swelling words of vanity. Oh, they might be pretty. Oh, they might move you. And they will certainly draw the crowds. What happens is they allure through the lust of the flesh. Joel and his little woman are going to get up today and all they're going to talk about are the lusts of the flesh. Making more money. Having a bigger house. Wearing nicer clothes. And being a champion. That's what they're going to talk about. It's great swelling words of vanity. And they allure, they allure God's people who have come to church to hear a message about Jesus Christ. They allure through the lust of the flesh because it's the lust of men that are satisfied by a message like that. Through much wantonness. Wantonness is unbridled desire for things. It's lascivious living. It's covetous living. It's greedy living for more. We need less rather than more to be better Christians. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 30 that we ought to pray for food and meat convenient for us. We want to pray that we don't want to be rich and we don't want to be poor. We want to be in the middle. But that isn't heard in most pulpits today because the emphasis is on the wantonness of being rich. And so these great great swelling words of vanity come out of the pulpits by this charismatic, gifted, eloquent, popular, well-dressed, promoted, make-uped, made up speaker and it's you know there wasn't any television in peter's day but we just get to see the fulfillment of this verse in a fuller sense than ever before for when they speak great swelling words of vanity they allure through the lust of the flesh through much wantonness those that were clean escape from them who live in error because what are churches made up of the churches that peter was writing he said there shall be false teachers among you And what were the you? It's this group of people here that were clean escaped from them who live in error. Who lives in error? The false teachers, the reprobates, and the world. They were clean escaped from them. They had been properly regenerated. They had been regenerated. There's no other way to do it. They had been regenerated and they had been properly converted. They were clean escaped. Let's go back and find that escape. Has Peter already introduced us to this escape? 
verse 4 of chapter 1, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. See that? This is the result. This is the result of a born again, elect child of God that is fully converted in verses 1 through 4. And you can find there at the end of verse 4 that it's described having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And Peter over here in chapter 2 actually adds to it by saying they are clean escaped. There's nothing left. They were fully converted. But these fully converted people sitting there week after week and hearing these vain swelling words of vanity, they're broken down in spirit. And if they're unstable at all and not fully grounded on God's Word, they're weaker and weaker and vulnerable to that message because every single one of us, no matter how cleanly escaped we are from the world, we still have sinful lusts and wantonness in our flesh that when a man in the pulpit allows it, parades it, exhibits it, we go down with them. Paul told Timothy, you know this well, Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Churches are lost by men who fail in one or both of these ways. Taking heed to himself and his personal life. Taking heed to the doctrine. Ministers need to take care of their personal life, that they are an example of holiness and righteousness and they need to take care of the doctrine that what they preach is the truth of God. And the combination together will save churches. But it's when ministers fail either one of these that churches are lost and people go down the drain. As this verse is describing, though they were clean escaped, they are allured by this easy gospel, this lascivious grace, this contemporary Christianity, this casual worship, this God loves everyone just the way you are approach instead of repentance, holiness, godliness, mortifying the flesh. Verse 19, while they promised them liberty. Are you able to follow the pronouns? Now now listen, brethren, in four words, there's two pronouns. While they promised them. They are the false teachers. Them are the church members. Them are the unstable. Them are the ones that were clean escaped. Them are the ones that are getting beguiled. Them are the ones that are being allured by these false teachers. While they, the false teachers, promised them liberty. Liberty! Listen, we don't need that Bible-thumping, uh, hell-fire-and-brimstone preaching from the past. That's ridiculous. Do you know that there are churches going down in Greenville right now that all they're saying from the pulpit is, you can't do this and you can't do that? Well, we don't have a church like that. Ha, 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 ha. That's going down right now all over Greenville County, especially Anderson County. We don't want a new spring. We want an old, the old paths. Jeremiah 6.16 says that we want the old paths. That's the good way. We want to follow the Lord in the old paths, not some new made-up way that attracts people. The reason they're attracted is because it is scratching the itching lusts of their ears because it's a perfect fulfillment of 2 Timothy 4. They promise them liberty. We believe in liberty. 
We believe that we are liberated from the law of Moses by the Lord Jesus Christ. So we believe in liberty. That's how the word is used in the book of Galatians. We believe in Christian liberty as it is used in Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8 and 10, that in things God doesn't care about, we don't care about. Go ahead and do it either way, one way or the other, and anywhere in between on the scale. If God doesn't care about them, we allow Christian liberty in our church. But when it comes to God's way of holy and righteous living, there is no liberty. God wants us to live our lives His way. And He gives us long lists of things He wants us to do and long lists of things He wants us not to do. And we are supposed to put on the one list, put off the old list, mortify our flesh, put on the Spirit, and walk in the Spirit. That's what the Bible teaches us. They promise them liberty. But while they're doing it, they themselves are the servants of corruption. That's the false teachers are under the servitude of their own lusts. The corrupt lusts inside them are controlling their lives, and they are under the control of those lusts, even while they're up there talking about a grace revolution and how much liberty and freedom that you have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Though they probably will not mention that wonderful word called gospel which is the good news and glad tidings of things Jesus Christ has done for us. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption, from of whom a man is overcome, of the same as he brought in bondage. Are these men overcome? What did it say about them? It said up there in verse 14, they have eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin. Would you say that that's pretty much overcome? Okay, now these last three verses. For if after they... Are you good at taking your pronouns and looking for the antecedent? Just look at it. Look at verse 20. For if after they, is they referring to the last mentioned group of people in verse 19, which are the servants of corruption, the false teachers? Or is they referring back to verse 18, It's referring back to verse 18 by virtue of the description given to us in the first part of verse 20. For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, these are not cursed children. These are the children of God that have escaped the pollutions of the world just like it was worded in verse 18 and just like it's worded in verse 4 of chapter 1. While they... for, For if, after they... These children of God, unstable souls, getting beguiled. For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, and this, look at all this work that we've gone through, that Peter has gone through, talking mostly about the false teachers, and we haven't really seen the wisdom for the words yet, except that we've drawn practical lessons from everything that has been said, but the real lesson is, they get into churches and wreak havoc by many following their pernicious ways, which verse 2 hinted at. By telling us, many shall follow their pernicious ways by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And now here we have it explained to us in more detail. In verse 20, For if after they, that is the children of God in a church, that's Israel being delivered from Egypt, that's Israel at the Jordan River facing the land of promise and saying we want to go back to Canaan because we miss the leaks. These are people that are baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that because of false teachers allowing a lascivious form of the gospel allow them to go back into their old ways of living. 
Or there wouldn't be any value to this chapter. Because reprobate false teachers are going to be dealt with by God. And if men cannot fall from their steadfastness, then there can be no warning given in a chapter like this. But we can fall from our steadfastness. A minister that does not do his duty, as I mentioned from 1 Timothy chapter 4, can cause a church to be lost. And we had read to us 1 Corinthians 10. Did you hear Brother Mark read 1 Corinthians 10 to us? That they did this and they did that and they did this and they did that. And for each one of those, the Apostle Paul said, Neither should ye murmur. Neither should ye commit fornication. Neither should ye commit idolatry. Because we are capable of all those sins. And they were set forth as our example that if we live that way, the Lord is going to punish us. He's going to chasten us. It's loving punishment. It's loving chastening, but it is painful, and it is more painful depending on how rebellious and wicked we are in our course of sin. For if, after they, these are the people of God, these are the children that have been clean escaped from the world, if, for if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the exact terminology that is used in verses 1 through 4 of the first chapter, they are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. Somebody says, how could that possibly be? Very easy. Very easy. Before you know better, God judges you by the laws of ignorance. But as soon as you know better and you go back to sin against the knowledge that God gave you, your judgment is going to be far worse. I want to ask, you know, the Israelites wanted to go back to Egypt because once they got out in the wilderness even with manna falling in the morning. And I know a lot of it was deception and a lot of it was the deceitfulness of sin, but they wanted to go back there for the leeks and the onions. You know, they had to work hard. They had to work hard making the pyramids, but they thought it was a better life back there. What happened to them instead? They got to go in circles in the wilderness until they all dropped dead. And God forsook them. So that they were worshiping the gods of the Canaanites. It can get worse. The Corinthians went back on what God taught them about the Lord's Supper and they were weak and sickly and many were already in the church cemetery. You say, Preacher, are you mentioning here that these are some of God's unconverted elect? And I would say, no, these aren't unconverted elect. These are converted and backsliding elect. They were converted. They were clean escaped through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But then they are entangled therein by these false teachers. And that is why the chapter is here so that we will stand up against them and save the people of God from this lascivious gospel and this wantonness and through the lust of the flesh. Do you remember? In 2 Timothy 3, 6 and 7, it says that false teachers creep into houses leading captive silly women. And you know what it says about them? Laden with sins and divers' lusts. See, there there is within a child of God still the lust of the flesh. And if a minister comes along and caters to them or promotes it or allows it, or says, it's okay, God loves you just the way you are, He knows you're weak, those people will be fascinated and attracted to that religion and that gospel. We cannot preach it. We have to stand against it. Verse 20 again, For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, these people are mentioned in verse 18, they are described in verses 1-4 through of chapter 1, these are God's elect that were truly converted 
If after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning, because Jesus gave the rule, to whom much is given, much shall be required. He that, who shall be beaten with the most stripes? The one that knew his father's will and didn't do it? Or the one that didn't know his father's will? The one that knew his father's will shall be beaten with many stripes. Jesus said, we have been blessed with much with 35 years that we celebrated last, last Lord's Day. Let's be faithful to it. As Brother Stephen read to us from Revelation chapter 2, hold fast that which ye have. We have it. Let's hold it fast and live it out in our lives. It had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. Of course there's a benefit in the gospel. But the benefit in the gospel is exceeded by the judgment that will come if we hear the gospel and then rebel against it. Do you remember that was read to you from Hebrews 10? For if they shall sin willfully, after that they have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation that shall devour the adversaries. That's, that's throughout the whole book of Hebrews. How shall we escape? If every transgression received a just recompense of reward under Moses, how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he, we be thought worthy if we sin against the Lord Jesus Christ? Now look, there is a temptation, and all Calvinists do it. All Calvinists make these people here at the end false professors. If they're false professors, that means they're reprobates. If they're reprobates, there's no danger to them. If there's no danger to them, why have 2 Peter 2? Let me show you in chapter 1. Chapter 1 and verse 9. I'm going to close. 1 and verse 9. He that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Are there people that were purged from their sins and knew it but forgot it and went back into the pig trough of this world? Indeed. So we have in the next verse, one ten. wherefore, the rather, we want to be different from that other approach of being forgetful of God's things so that we end up living fruitless lives by being entangled in the world again. And Peter said, this is so important that I will spend the rest of my life bringing these things to your remembrance in verses 12 through 15. Because it is so easy for it to happen. How do you think these churches out there happen? How do you think the Roman Catholic Church happened? Do you think that some man stood up someday in pajamas and said, I want to start a church, and one billion people said, we want to start it with you? It all happens by incremental compromise of us breaking down in our own lives and becoming unstable by being double-minded. We want to go out of this assembly today committed with one heart and one mind for the Lord Jesus Christ and hating sin wherever it creeps into our lives. We don't want to look at it. We don't want to think about it. We want to go away from it. Because that is how it starts. Incremental compromise in our personal and practical and private lives leads to a double-minded outlook and then along comes false doctrine that says we're just a little too strict. I'm going to tell you, one second after meeting the Lord Jesus Christ, you will not think that this church is too strict. Why in the world does it say in the New Testament It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And why does it say in that context, the Lord shall judge His people? 
We're not talking about the enemies of Christianity. We are talking about Christians themselves. Why does it say, for our God is a consuming fire in Hebrews 12.29? Because this is all very serious and God has not changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament because those are quotations that I just gave you from the Old Testament. That's chapter 1. How does the epistle end? Chapter 3 of 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3. Look at verse 17. Ye therefore, beloved, 3.17, Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. You are a fatalist if you do not think that God's people can fall into sin and have their faith overthrown. The Bible says that it happens. And the example of the Bible, from the front of the Bible to the back of the Bible, whether it's the churches of Asia referenced in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, or it's the people of Israel referenced as early as Deuteronomy and Joshua, they fall away. They f- One generation is faithful, the next generation falls away. One, it's pitiful. It's pit- Look at this verse right here. Is, did, did Peter just write that for, for taking up a little bit of space so that there could be a 17th verse for Bible quizzing? Or is there meaning behind that verse? Can we fall from our own steadfastness? You know, last week we wanted to tell the Lord how steadfast we are, and we did it humbly. But let's forget the past, and let's press on, let's hold fast to what God has given us. Because, you know, it's easy to happen to us according to the true proverb, A fool goes back to his folly just like a dog goes and eats his vomit. And a pig, though you might wash it ever ever so carefully and though you might put a pink bow around its neck, if you let that pink, uh, pink pig out into your freshly manicured yard, it will turn it into a mud pit in no time. You say, well, what if it's dry grass? It will provide the liquid. If you've ever been around pigs, it's amazing what they can do. And so Solomon in Proverbs 26.11 gave us that proverb that a dog returns to its vomit and a pig goes back to wallowing because that is a nature that we all have that tends toward the lusts of our flesh. And if a man in the pulpit allows it or through his lifestyle promotes it, he can beguile unstable souls and take them down with him. Let us be faithful to what God has shown us. And the real faithfulness is not holding to baptism by immersion. The real faithfulness is the rest of this day with every waking thought you have to rule your thoughts, to rule your speech, to rule your lives, to rule your inputs, that we would maintain personal, practical holiness that will lead to us being very stable souls that false teachers cannot get a hand on. Because Christ is our all. And I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Let that be our cry. May Jesus Christ be praised. Amen. Amen.